Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 29. My name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, The Suicide Solution, co-written with Dr. Daniel Amina, who's the clinical director for Amen Clinics. Uh, that, that book uh, really has a long and winding story behind it <laughs> uh, for, for, for many years uh, because I'm embedded in, in sort of a high suicide rate area of the country. Um, I had this issue intrude into our family's lives, um, in so many different ways, especially having two school-age kids at home. Uh, we were often drawn into, uh, the, the latest tragedy that had happened. And because of that, I grew more and more, uh, sort of, uh, unrest about how, the conversation around suicide, depression, and anxiety was happening. Um, that so many of the responses to suicide seemed either cliched, shallow, or just ineffectual to me. And I started thinking about uh, how Jesus interacted with people to bring them into a place of not only physical healing, but soul healing, that he was always... Uh, operating on multiple levels whenever he interacted with someone, not just on the physical. Uh, so the examples, are, there's so many of them. Uh, one, one that's just an obvious one is when a woman uh, touches the hem of Jesus' garment in the middle of a, a crowd as Jesus is rushing to get to the home of a man whose daughter is dying. Um, and he stops because this woman touches, touches the hem of his garment and asks in the crowd, who did that? He, he doesn't want her to get her healing, her physical healing, which she gets as soon as she touches, touches his garment. He doesn't want her to just slink back into the crowd because there's another healing that she needs. And so uh, he challenges her to, in the, to step up in the crowd and say, it was me. And when she says it was me, it's the same woman who's been ostracized and marginalized by that crowd because of her physical problem. So she had a physical problem, but it led to a social problem and a psychological problem. And she wants her to be able to say in the light of day, in the middle of the crowd, it was me. And for Jesus to affirm her healing and to then tell her that she is free to rejoin society, that she is no longer to be treated as a pariah in the culture. So he's all the time um, understanding the need for soul healing. And so because of this, because uh, this reality was kind of in my face all the time around these episodes of, of suicide, suicidality, I felt compelled to uh, write a book proposal uh, and I did, which is a lot of work. If you've, uh, as, a, as an author has written uh, many books, um, uh, a good part of the work of writing a book is writing the proposal in the first place. 
So I did that. My, my agent sent it out. Uh, I've got a few nibbles, but nothing more than that, because um, why would a guy who's not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or works in the mental health field, what, what's the narrative behind a person like that writing a book about suicide? So the, the narrative didn't fit. <laughs> and uh, I, I recognized that that idea would have to die on the vine. But what happened is that about a year later or so, my agent called me out of the blue and said that there was a major publisher looking for a partner to a doctor from the Amen Clinics, um, and they were wanting a, a book about suicide in the church. <laughs> and of course, my agent immediately thought about me, and I ended up meeting Dr. Daniel Amina to see if we had a kindred spirit around all this, and it turned out we did almost from the the moment we started talking, we had a connection and, uh, and that led to a partnership, which led to us writing this book together. So he brings his clinical experience and his research and his expertise as a psychiatrist who treats many, many people, um, who are depressed or, or locked in anxiety or, or struggling with suicidality along, along with my background and my perspective on, um, how Jesus uh, intends to intrude into our lives to bring whole health to us. And out of that mix came the suicide solution. So it's, it's a, it's a book that the tagline is, is finding your way out of the darkness, but Daniel Amina, uh, my co-author really lobbied for the tagline to be a way to live. Um, he didn't win that argument, but I think he was right in saying that what the book is about is not just about, uh, help for people struggling with suicidality. It's really about uh, a whole health way of living modeled by Jesus and uh, promoted by Jesus and, um, and drawn from his own life. So uh, a way to live is a good tag for what this book is really about. So, so if um, you're a struggler yourself or know someone who is, or if you simply want to live a life that continuously builds a bulwark against this downward pressure into anxiety and depression, uh, then I think this book will be a tremendous gift to you. So again, it's called The Suicide Solution. I'm also obviously uh, uh, author of the recently released uh, daily devotional called uh, The Jesus-Centered Daily. So I just want to remind you as we head into the holiday time here, it's a it's a great, I think it's a great gift for a friend or family member around Christmas time. It's a hardback book. Um, it's beautifully, uh, has a beautiful cover. It's beautifully designed um, and it's a everyday devotional. Uh, so as a gift to someone who you hope uh, this leads to a deepening relationship with Jesus, I, I think it's the perfect thing for that. So it's available everywhere. You can you know, check it out on, on uh, Amazon.com. Uh, uh, if you do it there, obviously you can get a, a look inside the book and kind of taste test it before you before you get it. Same with Suicide Solutions. So there you have it, my preamble. So this is our fourth episode in our ongoing focus on this Jesus in the real world um, series. So we're going to keep doing this for a while um, until... <laughs> Uh, Jesus makes it plain to me it's time to switch, but but uh, the, the idea is that we're pursuing the heart of Jesus, 
through the lens of things that are going on in the world right now. And today, what we're going to focus on is ideologies. So uh, talk about something that's going on in the world right now. Uh, it's, it's hard not to see the war over ideology happening in front of us every day, uh, not just in the news and uh, in the culture, but in our own personal relationships. Uh, you could call the last two years the war of the ideologies. Um, and it's not just political. Uh, our ideologies come into conflict on so many levels now, even uh, uh, around simple things like wearing a mask in the middle of a pandemic. How is it possible that ideologies have become a part of that discussion? Well, it's because we live in an age of competing ideologies. And an ideology is, is very often uh, buried under the surface. It's like the, the big part of the iceberg that, that uh, is sub submerged under the surface of the ocean. That's the ideology. You don't often see it uh, on the surface. But in the last two years, those, uh, all of our ideologies have been dragged up from the depths and they're on display. Uh, so a kind of a formal definition of an ideology is that it's simply a system of ideas that aspires both to explain the world and to change it. So a system of ideas that is intended to help bring understanding to how the world works, but also to change it toward the goals of that ideology. So that's a, a simple way to describe it. And these ideologies are all around us all the time. So I think um, an easy challenge, um, I just gave myself this challenge, by the way, is all you have to do is open up your favorite app to your favorite uh, news source. So it could be CNN, Politico, Apple News, Fox, Reuters, AP, anything that you trust um, as a news source. And you can scroll through the news links there and choose one, and you can find an ideology buried in that story. So I just did this right before I started recording. I just pulled up CNN, uh, cnn.com, and I clicked on the article uh, that says, Americans say they hate the economy, but act like they love it. <laughs> Americans say they hate the economy, but they act like they love it. So the uh, essence of the article is about how 70% uh, of Americans rate the economy negatively right now, which is uh, a near record, a number of people who have a negative view of the economy, and yet they are shopping at record paces. Um, so at, at the root of this negative view of the economy is the staggering rise in inflation, especially with uh, gas prices right now. But gas prices are just uh, one aspect of this uh, of this rise in inflation. So uh, Americans are worried about inflation, but it hasn't stopped them from buying. <laughs> and they're they're actually getting raises at work, and they're quitting work to get better jobs, and feeling very confident that they can do that. And heading into the holiday season, they are buying, buying, buying. And what's interesting uh, about this article as you, as you read through it, um, uh, predictably, uh, each side of the political divide has a very different view of what's going on here. So let me just read you a portion of the article. The deeply polarized state of America 
may be amplifying these inflationary concerns. The University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index shows wide gaps among partisans during both the Trump and Biden administrations along key issues, including jobs and inflation-adjusted income. Quote, partisans aligned with the president's party have adopted very positive moods and those in the opposing camp very negative moods, the University of Michigan report said. Quote, partisan supporters of one or the other president either mentioned or ignored rising home and stock values, inflation and income growth rates, or mentioned or ignored employment or unemployment rates, and so far, so on. Um, so here, what you learn is that the ideology becomes a lens. Uh, so I have a lens that tells a story. And in this case, along the political divide, one party is bad, maybe even evil, if you want to take it to that level. And one is not, one is good. Um, and therefore, when you see evidence of things like inflation or, um, or stock values or home prices, you get selective about whether that's good news or bad news, because it has to fit your narrative. So you're, when, when you see that, uh, for instance, that uh, stock values are rising right now under the Biden administration, if you're opposed to the Biden administration, that, that fact doesn't fit your narrative, meaning your ideology demands that fact to be a negative indicator of something. So then you look for ways that it must be a negative indicator. You spin it to fit your ideology because the ideology rules. Um, it's, it's like an, an interior narrative that has to go the way we think the narrative is supposed to go. If it doesn't, it creates tremendous dissonance in us. We cannot accept a narrative that doesn't make sense to us anymore. And our ideology is what helps us to craft our narrative to make sense of our world. So this is why our ideologies are such an important thing to Jesus, by the way, because the, your ideology will determine the way you live, the way you treat other people, the way you give your life, life's energy, um, the, the things that you say and do in life. Your ideology will fuel all of those things. And Jesus wants us to adopt the ideology of the kingdom of God. We're, we're all adopting an ideology in our life right now. He wants us to fall in love with him and by extension, um, live out the ideology of the kingdom of God on earth and have that be the overshadowing way that we live our life. We might call that the way of Jesus, but the way of Jesus is also an ideology. It's, it helps to make sense of the world and it helps us to also change the world when we follow the ideology of the kingdom of God. So, so, uh, Jesus came, um, he, he not only came to bring truth, he said one of his names is truth. <laughs> it's, it goes way past him just delivering the truth. His very presence is truth. So he is wanting to expose things that are lies, deceptions, and falsehoods, because those are the tools of the enemy, and instead point us toward the truth. And the truth is embedded in the ideology of the kingdom of God. So... Um, uh, again, another way to describe an ideology is, is the story we live inside or the self-narrative that we've embraced. Um, 
a couple of weeks ago, I was invited by the president of Youth for Christ, whose name is Jake Bland. Jake, Jake and I go way back. Um, his father-in-law, who's a good friend of mine, uh, introduced me to Jake uh, when he was a young uh, leader in Youth for Christ um, at their national office. And uh, Jake asked if I would have a mentoring relationship with him for a while. So for about a year, Jake and I met once, once a month um, just to talk. And it was a really great connection I had with Jake. He was hungry and already primed to live in a Jesus-centered way in his life. And he's just hungry for more. So skipping forward a few years, uh, Jake, because of his talent and ability, um, was recently named the president of Youth for Christ. He's the, I think he's the youngest president they've ever had. And um, he's in his uh, early to mid-30s. So he's very young to be in such a, a broad leadership role. But he's just such a talented person. And he called, he emailed me to ask if I'd be willing to talk on, on Zoom to a gathering of all of his U.S. leaders. Um, and I immediately said, yes, that, I would love to do that. So we did a, he did an hour-long interview with me, he and his team did, um, all about the Jesus-centered way of living. And um, he asked great questions, but toward the end of the interview, he asked me a question that was very challenging. He said, what's the greatest challenge in the church today? What's the greatest challenge in the church today? And I had to pause for a moment because there's obviously lots of challenges in the church. But what I said was, I think it's our propensity to edit Jesus, meaning to uh, morph Jesus to fit our ideology and our internal narrative. So we, just like everything else with our ideologies, we leave out some things and we spin other things so that they make sense within the constraints of our narrative. So I think the greatest challenge in the church today is, is how widespread this is happening right now, where we edit Jesus to fit our worldview instead of encountering Jesus and letting him change our worldview. Uh, you know, the, 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 the way forward is to get close to Jesus as close as we can or continuously closer to Jesus. And as we do to let him change the way we think and act and uh, respond and relate to let him edit us is, is really the, the momentum forward, not the other way around. I love what Eugene Peterson wrote in his forward to the, to the great book, Jesus Meaning Wild by Mark Galley. So Eugene Peterson writes this um, in the foreword to that book, every omitted detail of Jesus so carefully conveyed to us by the gospel writers reduces Jesus. We need the whole Jesus, the complete Jesus, everything he said, every detail of what he did. Just so even more profound from the person who wrote the message version of the Bible, who had to consider those very words and how to re-paraphrase or translate them into new language for us, he had to carefully consider every one of these details and render it um, in a uh, honoring, respectful, and truthful way. So every omitted detail of Jesus so carefully conveyed to us by the gospel writers reduces Jesus. I couldn't agree more with him. So editing Jesus is a huge deal. 
in our in our life and in our culture. And the reason we're editing him is because of our ideologies. Um, they rule. Um, they're, they're, the, they're the editing tool that we use. So what are some examples of this? What, how, is, how does Jesus confront ideologies? Well, I, I'll make the case here that when you read the Gospels, um, it's very rare to see Jesus not confronting uh, deceptive ideologies or untrue ideologies. He's doing it constantly in his interactions with people. Here's, here's just a, a simple example, but you could find them anywhere you see Jesus interacting with someone. So um, when Jesus asks his disciples, who, who do they say he is? Peter speaks up and says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is ecstatic. He, he says, the flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, Peter. Uh, the spirit revealed that truth to you. Way to go. Way to say what's true. And then right after that, Jesus, because he's upending, makes a hard 180 degree turn and lets them know, this is the first of many times, that his future includes his death, that he's, that he's on a path to sacrificing his life. Um, for them and for the world. And Peter, who's just spoken the truth about him, speaks up and says, that's never going to happen to you. Not as long as I'm here. Um, that will not happen, Jesus. You need to stop talking that way. So, so Peter rebukes Jesus. So he's got it a little, little heady because Jesus told him, wow, that was a great answer, Simon. And uh, he, um, he pushes the boundaries a little bit here, and he rebukes Jesus over saying, what, what is actually going to happen, this dire thing that's going to happen in the future. And this is when Jesus tells Simon to get behind me, Satan. So what Jesus is doing here is confronting the serious consequences of his ideological editing. In Simon's ideology, what he's a part of is a movement led by Jesus that most likely is going to build toward military influence to overthrow the oppressive government of the Romans and uh, sort of drag the Jewish people back into their rightful place as, as God's chosen people who are not living under oppression any longer. So that is Simon's ideology around the Messiah. This is what the Messiah came to do. That is his internal narrative. So when Jesus speaks the way he does about his, his, his coming sacrifice, it doesn't fit Peter's ideology. It doesn't fit the narrative. So, and that narrative requires Jesus to say and do what he wants. So when that doesn't happen, he rebukes Jesus for violating his ideology. So this is a serious cancer. Um, Jesus recognizes how serious it is, and it has to be confronted vigorously. And so he does. He tells Peter, you're working on the side of Satan right now. Um, I don't need that. Get behind me. I don't, I, I don't want that in my face right now because I have a mission and you're trying to divert me from that mission and it's wrong. Your ideology is wrong. So what we're really saying here is that we come to Jesus as clay, not as the potter. We submit ourselves to be formed by him 
not set ourselves to form him into the image of our narrative or ideology. Uh, we, we instead come to him like clay, ready to be formed, ready to be changed by, by what he loves and what he doesn't love, what, uh, what he values and what he honors and what he doesn't honor. We wrap ourselves around his ideology, the kingdom of God. So let's slow down a little and pay some ridiculous attention to how Jesus responds and engages ideologies. So as we go through a few examples of his encounters, I want you to ponder exactly what ideology Jesus is confronting and contrast it with the thing he's lifting up or celebrating instead. So think about, uh, uh, I'm asking you to put your Sherlock Holmes hat on here. So pay ridiculous attention to the details in these stories, looking through the lens of ideology to see what ideology might Jesus be coming up against and confronting. And then what is the contrasting thing he's lifting up or celebrating instead? So let's start off with a short story, very familiar story of Mary and Martha. This is from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. So here we go, dive into this little story. And then again, the question is, where's the ideology? What, what is Jesus doing to object to that ideology? And then what is he lifting up or celebrating instead? Here we go. Starting in verse 38, Luke 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to get up and help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, that few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So let's think here. What is the ideology embedded in this story? If, if we could give a sentence to that ideology, what's, what is it that, that Jesus is confronting here? And it appears to be that Martha believes fairness of effort is paramount, and that hospitality is the highest need as Jesus has come to visit them, that um, doing the things that make a guest feel warm and welcome and cared for and that they, they have food to eat and refreshments and things like that, uh, I guess you could translate it to uh, if a friend suddenly showed up at your house when you weren't expecting them and your house is kind of a mess, um, but your friend's in need. And, but instead of paying attention to your friend's need, you're more worried about how they are experiencing your house and the messiness of it, and that your house is not prepared to have a guest come. So you're embarrassed about your physical surroundings and that your lack of preparation. So you pay attention to that instead of the reason your friend came to see you in the first place. So here, Jesus seems to be pointing out Martha's ide ideology that says, um, the context around my visit to you and the, um, the, the, the hospitality that surrounds my visit to you 
is more important than you just listening to me right now. That and the, the way he's confronting that ideology is he's saying there's that Martha's worried and concerned about so many things, but there's an overarching concern that Mary's actually invested in. He's not saying that it's not important to be a gracious host. He's just saying what Mary has chosen to do overshadows all of those things. She's taking it, Mary is taking advantage of this moment to drink in from Jesus, whatever she can. And she doesn't want to waste any of that moment by scurrying around to make sure everything's taken care of. And in fact, she's willing to allow her sister to scurry around to do those things because she's also not going to say, Martha, why don't you just stop doing that and come listen to Jesus like I am? She just lets Martha do what Martha feels very strongly that she should be doing. Uh, and then, of course, Martha feels resentful of that. So Jesus, in confronting this ideology, says, Mary has chosen something that's better. In fact, she's chosen the only one thing that's really needed. What he's trying to say to Martha is, yes, in a sea of concerns uh, about getting things right, there's only one thing you really need to get right when I've come here to be with you, and that is to simply pay attention to me, to not be distracted for, uh, by your hospitality concerns taking you away from just taking a big drink of me right now. And he says, that's, I'm not going to take that away from her. I am not going to tell Mary that what she really needs to be doing is helping her sister. What I'm telling you is to take a big, deep breath, Martha, and invest in what's really important. In the kingdom of God, paying attention to Jesus is the highest thing. We know this from other sources as well, too, on the Mount of Transfiguration and one other time in the Gospels. We hear the audible voice of God. The other time is when Jesus is baptized in the, in the Jordan. Um, we hear the audible voice of God twice. And in both times, the voice of God says the same thing, which is very important. Uh, if God's good, if we're going to hear the audible voice of God, and he says the same thing twice in two different occasions, it's worth paying attention to. And both times he, he says two things. This is my beloved son. I'm very proud of him. I love my son. And then the second thing he says is, listen to him. Listen to him. The, the point of our encounters with Jesus is to slow down and listen to him, to encounter him, to, to drink him in. And this is what is true in the ideology of the kingdom of God. The audible voice of God underlines it, and Jesus himself over and over again tells his friends and his enemies, the most important thing is to drink of me right now. So there's an example. Uh, so let's, let's move to another one. Let's call this one um, a Venmo to Caesar. <laughs> that's, you won't find that in the subheading in your Bible, uh, but that's what I'm calling it, a Venmo to Caesar. This is Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Um, so let's dive into this. We'll start with verse 15, Matthew 22. If you have your Jesus-centered Bible handy and you're not driving, you want to crack it open there, give you a moment here to flip on over to Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So they're already setting, setting up their trap here. They're saying what they don't really believe, which is, uh, well, we know who you are. We know that you know, you're, you, you only speak in accordance with the truth, right? And you aren't swayed by others. You don't pay attention to their position. So they're setting the trap up here. So in verse 17, they say, um, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So they're saying, you know, Jesus, we know that just because he's Caesar, that doesn't mean anything. So what do you really think about paying this, this tax to Caesar? And they're trying to set a trap that where Jesus ignores um, something that could get him arrested and or killed if he seems to be in opposition or leading a rebellion against Caesar. So they're trying to corner him into saying something that could get him into real trouble. Um, and so Jesus responds in verse 18, but Jesus knowing their evil intent. Oh, that's so good. He knows exactly what they're trying to do. So he's wide awake to what's happening. He says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? He just names what's happening. Uh, uh, he, tell, he, he shows them that he understands what's going on. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So now here, here Jesus is, is in upending mode. <laughs> this is so, so brilliant. Uh, and nobody does what Jesus does. I mean, his, this is his beauty. When you see how he responds in a highly charged situation like this, the creativity and imagination that he uses to respond to them is just staggering. So he says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is on this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. It's, just, it's so staggering how he responds to this. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what's his. And now you have to determine which is which. <laughs> he's, he's, he's putting it all back on them. He's not going to make a proclamation. He's saying, figure out what's God's and give that to him. And if that's Caesar's and that's rightfully Caesar's, then give it to him. So it says they were amazed and they left him and went away. And they're amazed because they thought they had a perfect trap for him and they never saw this coming. So what is the ideology embedded in this story? And in just a sentence, what's the ideology that, that Jesus is confronting here? Well, um, he's, he's confronting a belief that, uh, that these Pharisees have that he is a false Messiah and therefore, uh, a threat. Therefore he's going to threaten the stasis or the, uh, the, the, the rut that's been established under Roman occupation. So the Pharisees have made it, made uh, made it possible to function alongside and inside this oppression. And they've, they're actually in positions of authority and privilege in this system. And here Jesus comes along and to them seems to threaten it. And so in their ideology, 
he is a false messiah. They have blinded themselves to him, and therefore he needs to be taken out. And uh, their evil intent is to trap him uh, into something that will get him in trouble and expose him as not the Messiah. So uh, the way Jesus confronts this is to so very adroitly force the whole issue back on them and get them to have to consider for themselves uh, what they owe to the Roman oppressors and what they owe to God. There's an embedded challenge here to them that I don't know that we often see, but are they really giving to God what God deserves in the midst of this oppressive regime? Are they honoring God above all else? Or are they honoring themselves and their own position and comfort and uh, success above all else? Which are you honoring? Because in the kingdom of God, the worship of God is the ideology of that kingdom, <laughs> that nothing is elevated above him. And so in Jesus's response, he's reminding them again that there is no one worthy of your worship higher than God. And right now, what you're doing is worshiping yourself, your own path, your own success. Um, so he punctures their ideology, which puts them at the top of the food chain. And instead, he upends that with his response. Um, and he also uh, responds in such a shrewd way relative to whether people should be paying this, this uh, imperial tax. Uh, it's a charged question because um, the conquered and oppressed Jews are forced to pay this tax to Caesar when they're supposed to be, by all rights, free. So they're goading Jesus into saying what they think a typical revolutionary would just swallow this bait. Of course, you just shouldn't be paying the imperial tax to Caesar. The Jews should be free. If, you're, if a Messiah is, has come to set his people free, so therefore the, uh, the tax to Caesar is just aiding and abetting an oppressor. Uh, he doesn't say that. <laughs> he doesn't because there's something higher at stake here. Who are we really worshiping here? Um, is it you or is it God? So let's do one more, um, one more story. Let's let's choose this one from Luke chapter seven, verses thirty-six through forty-eight. I call this story "A Sketchy Woman Crashes a Party." So uh, this is one of my favorite stories in all the Gospels. But again, we're thinking about the ideology embedded in this story in just one sentence. Why does Jesus object to that ideology and what does he lift up or celebrate instead? So here we go. Luke 7, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to that Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him. So <laughs> this man is thinking these things to himself. But Jesus pays attention to people 
and he saw, you know, the, you can just picture Simon's face as he's thinking about this. It probably wasn't that hard to read his thoughts <laughs> in the moment, but Jesus answers him and says, Simon, I have something to tell you. So instead of just directly confronting what he knows is true and going on inside of Simon, Jesus decides to come sideways with him and tell him a story. So Simon tells, says, tell me, teacher. So then Jesus tells him a story. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And now he makes the connection for him. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. So what's the ideology embedded in this story? This is one of the more obvious ones. So Simon, a Pharisee, uh, is holding to the ideology that um, those who adhere to the law and make themselves the best person they can be while avoiding sinful behaviors are of the top rank. They're the ones you want to hang out with. They're the ones you want to honor and respect. They're the ones that you want to invite into your presence because they're the good ones. They're the goodest of the good. And, and in this rank order, uh, those who are, uh, should have the, the uh, easiest invitation into your presence are those who have the honor of following the rules the best. So in this ideology, there is a clear caste system, and this woman is at the bottom of that system. She's a known sinful woman. Therefore, she should have no access to someone like Jesus, because access to Jesus comes with the uh, implicit assumption that you deserve access to him, that you've won that access by your own actions and choices, that you have uh, so disciplined yourself in your own goodness that you win the right to be in the presence of an honored guest. And if you haven't done those things, and if you've done wrong, you have no right to be around him. So that's the ideology that this Pharisee, Simon, and all Pharisees at the time lived by. It was a ranked order with quote-unquote sinners at the bottom, and those who are at the top, who are we all, all know are equally sinful, but quite adept at... Um, managing that sin and managing the facade of their own goodness, they deserve to be at the top. And so Jesus tells this story of uh, the person who had a great debt wiped out and why that person would be even more grateful. And so he's essentially saying to Simon in the kingdom of God, it doesn't work the way you're describing. 
the kingdom of God, the people who know they need me and are desperate for me are at the top. Um, and the, the evidence that this woman is desperate for him, highly aware of her own soul and how much sinning she has done, her response to that is in humility to worship Jesus, to care for Jesus, to honor Jesus, and to respect him, to treat him with a kind of intimate vulnerability and relational intimacy that Jesus craves. And it all comes because she's so aware of her own need for him. She's so aware of her, her need to have her debt wiped away. So because of that, she, she cleans Jesus's dirty feet with her tears and hair. What an act of humility. Uh, she kisses his feet when he received no kiss when he entered that room. All of the normal hospitable things you do to honor a, an honored guest, they don't give that to Jesus in this room. They don't offer to wash his feet. They don't give him the familiarity and the respect and the, and the gracious invitation of a kiss. They don't put any oil on his head to bless him. Um, instead, this woman does all of those things, despite her position in culture and society. She does all of these things. And he tells the Pharisee, Simon, then, and the others gathered there, because of what she is displaying so obviously, her sins are forgiven because she has accurately expressed her debt to Jesus, recognizing he's the only one who can take it away. And because of that, because she asks for her debt to be taken away by her actions, Jesus takes it away. She takes that debt away. But he implicitly is saying, you, Simon, because you don't think you owe very much, you're not that interested in needing me. Your, your need for me is not visceral. In fact, it's almost dead. Um, you haven't done anything since I entered this room to show me that you're really grateful and in need of who I am. But this woman has gone out of her way. So the ideology is we can be good without God. And uh, it's a competition to be as good as you can. And if you're on the losing end of that competition, uh, you deserve to be shunned and kept from um, gatherings such as this and uh, the presence of Jesus himself. So Jesus objects to that ideology by lifting up what is true about this woman. And in so doing says in the ideology of the kingdom of God, awareness of your own need and a desperate, uh, a, a desperate journey to have your need met in me, the acknowledgement that you need me above all else, that's how the kingdom of God works. So there's a, a few stories we could go on and on in every encounter Jesus has. This is what I'm saying. He's, he's servicing the ideology there embedded in the story. Um, he's confronting that ideology and he's celebrating something else instead. So if we think about the ideology of Jesus embedded in the kingdom of God, you, you could through <laughs> one way to, to, to describe that is the knowledge of our need for Jesus is part of the kingdom of God's ideology. 
the self-aware knowledge that I need Jesus, and then humbly acting out of that reality by seeking him out, inviting him in, and honoring him uh, as the one who wipes away our debt so that we could be invited in relationship with him. That's part of the kingdom of God ideology. That's why humility is so embedded in that ideology, because humility allows us to stoop through the open door. We have an open door into the presence of Jesus, but we have to stoop to get to walk through it. We have to first acknowledge our great need of him before we walk through it into relationship with him. Why? Because if you try to relate to Jesus while you still believe that you're, you're your own God, you won't be able to relate to him because you're living a lie. In order for us to relate to Jesus in an authentic way, we have to relate to him in truth. And what this woman did in this story is relate to him in truth. She's the only one in the room who recognized her deep need and the, the place of Jesus, the, the superseding presence of Jesus. She's the only one who worships him. Um, when she does, she is operating in the kingdom of God's ideology. Well, there you have it, gang. I hope uh, coming out of this uh, that you can raise your radar um, to see ideologies all around you and to consider th through your everyday life how that ideology is forming what you do and what you say. Um, and ask yourself a question. How do you think Jesus would respond to that ideology when it surfaces in you? How do you think he would respond to it based on how he's responded to others who have adopted or living out the same ideology that you have? How would he respond to that? Um, it's a good thing to think about the ideology of Jesus all the time um, as we move through our life and to compare what it is we say we believe with what Jesus says is the ideology of the kingdom of God. So for more on uh, this, you can you can go to uh, SoundCloud if that's where you're getting your podcast from. You can go to the episode um, on SoundCloud for this for this podcast today. This is season six, episode twenty nine, to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. You can also go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and look for season six, episode twenty nine. You'll get links about what we talked about today. Um, and uh, as a reminder. This is a strangely named podcast called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's produced uh, at ricklawrence.com. And you can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, or SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you again next time.